Colossians chapter 1, as we continue in our study of this wonderful book, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, thank you for the honor of gathering here today. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening your word. And we ask now that, Lord, as we have opened your word, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits in the name of Jesus. And that, Lord, you would do a deep and lasting work in us. That you would speak into our lives your precepts, your truths, your wisdom. And then that you, Spirit, would cause us to walk in line with your precepts and truth and wisdom. That our lives, our mindsets, our hearts would be brought into and under your will today, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would give us much more than a Bible study. That you would give us a life-transforming experience that we wouldn't just um, be in the Word of God, but we would discover the God of the Word in a profound and new and powerful way today. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and teach us and to move in our hearts and do something wonderful for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, we looked at verse 24. And we saw in verse 24, Paul speaking of his sufferings that he suffered on behalf of the church. Not sufferings like the sort that Jesus suffered. Remember that Jesus suffered so that our sins might be forgiven. But Paul suffered in service, not for salvation for the church, but in serving the church in order of salvation or in the line or after salvation doing the work of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel to the glory of God for the sake of the church that the kingdom might be expanded. And it's of this church that Paul begins to speak about now in verse 25. Let's read of it. It says in verse 25, Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul here is speaking about the church, about ministry, and about the mystery. Now it's important that we understand what the mystery is. What is Paul referring to? Well, first of all, I'll remind you that Paul is writing to combat some false, some wrong, some erroneous ideas that were floating around the church in Colossae at this time. And you remember that they were influenced from Greek philosophical thought, early Gnosticism. And Gnosticism bred in the church a sort of arrogance. And it was manifest in the church in Colossae with these ideas. The idea was prevalent that there was a special kind of knowledge, a special kind of wisdom, the attaining of which was only possible through certain mystical experiences. And furthermore, they forwarded the idea that there were mysteries or secret teachings that were known only to an exclusive group and the masses were excluded from them. The implications of this kind of thinking is obvious. Maybe you've encountered some of this kind of thinking, either within or without the church. But the implications are very clear. It breeds a sort of have and have not mentality. 
We have the special wisdom. We have the special knowledge. We've had the special experiences. And we now have these mysteries and these secret teachings. And if you don't have them, you don't have everything that you ought to have. That idea was penetrating the church. And so people were being led away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ, being led to think that there was something more that they were missing, and that these early Gnostics held the key to the understanding. And they were led to begin to long for this, but they weren't even sure what they were longing for because it was a mystery, and they were secret teachings, and they didn't know, they just knew they didn't have it, so they must have been missing something. And Paul says, no. Paul destroys all this by pointing to, guess who? Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in the second chapter of Colossians, second verse, second part of the verse, that we may indeed attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul asserts once again that everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in Christ Jesus himself. That there is nothing to be added to it. There is nothing more that is necessary. It is all in him. And all treasures of knowledge are in Jesus. And all wisdom that we need are in Jesus. And that we have as Christians who have Christ the full assurance of understanding. The full assurance that God wants to reveal himself to us. That Jesus wants us to know him. He's not trying to keep something from us. He's not making us pursue something mysterious and unknown. Rather, it is known. And that is the definition of a mystery in the New Testament. The New Testament definition of a mystery, anytime that a mystery is mentioned, is that it is something that was once concealed namely in the times of the Old Testament, but is now revealed through the New Testament. Something that was silent, but is now vocalized. It is known. There are several mysteries spoken of in the New Testament. One is with with regards to Israel and the partial hardening that has happened to their hearts that the Gentiles might be brought into the church. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. And so he reveals to them, to us through the book of Romans, that there's a hardening that's taken place to Israel until the Gentiles are brought in completely. Another mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New, is the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but some of us shall be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the trump of God, at the shout of Michael the archangel. We shall be caught up in the sky, meet the Lord, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. A mystery concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. One more is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. That being that marriage is an analogy to Christ and the church. That was concealed. The church as a whole was concealed in the Old Testament. It is revealed in the New. And we know that our marriages are an analogy of and are to be reflective of the relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. Now the mystery that is revealed here in our text that Paul is referring to is simply this. That the Jewish Messiah... The Christ, 
Christ is the Greek phraseology for Messiah. Messiah is how we say in English the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning Messiah, right? When we say Jesus Christ, we mean Jesus the Messiah. The mystery being revealed is that the Jewish Messiah would include, would save, and would indwell Gentiles in salvation. That the Jewish Messiah would include Gentiles. Now, I should, probably should define Gentile. Anytime you see the word Gentile in the Bible, it refers to any people group, race, or nation other than the Jews, other than Israel. In the Bible, you have basically the Jews and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles. And understand that it was alluded to, it was referenced in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a blessing for all the nations, not just the nation of Israel. But what was a mystery, mystery, what was concealed in the Old Testament was how the Gentiles would be brought into the promises of God that were made to Israel. That was the mystery. Understand that salvation comes through the Jews. That the Jews are the chosen people of God. That all the promises of God were made first to the Jews. And that the Messiah came through the Jews. Hello, Jesus was a... Jew who had Jewish parents who was born in Israel. And this was alluded to in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12 when God makes something called the Abrahamic covenant, his promises with Abraham. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Abraham is told by God to get up, to leave his people, to go to a land of which he does not know. That is the land of Israel. He is told by God that God would make him a great nation. That is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And that through that nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That is an early promise of the Messiah. Now we have it alluded to again in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. The Lord speaking says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That term there, nations, can be translated and is translated in the New Testament, Gentiles. It says that in the New American Standard Bible, margin. And so God here is speaking of a servant that he will anoint and raise up, who will bring justice to all the nations. The promise here is made to Israel, but it's clear that it's going to be extended to the Gentiles as well. Now, who is the servant spoken of? It's Jesus. Matthew chapter 12 uses the same passage to refer to Jesus. Verses 18 and 21. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so it is revealed in the New Testament that the way that the Gentiles are brought into the promises of God is through the Messiah and in the church. 
that in the church, Jew and Gentile become one. We're told in the book of Galatians that prior to the Messiah coming, the Gentiles were excluded from the promises of God without a connection to God, far from God. But that the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, come came to redeem not only Israel, but also the Gentiles. And now there is this new organism that is revealed in the New Testament, the mystery of the church, where there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free man, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the work of the Messiah. Now, Paul is the one who was appointed in the church to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. And that's what he's referring to here in our passage. But know and understand that when the gospel first began to go to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, it was through Peter. And it was a really big deal. You see, Jesus went first to the lost house of Israel. He went first to the Jews. And they were all Jews who were first converted, who were saved, who were born again. And the early church was all Jews. And for about the first uh, nine chapters or so, it remained, of the book of Acts, it remained all Jews. But God had a plan for the Gentiles. And so one day in Acts chapter 10, Peter is chilling on a rooftop just seeking the Lord. And this rooftop is located in Joppa. In just three weeks' time, 80 people from our church will be going to Israel. One of our first stops will be in Joppa. In Joppa, we will go to the very rooftop where Peter sat. You say, incredible, unbelievable, I don't believe it. How would you know? It's 2,000 years ago. Listen, the house which Peter was on top of was the house of a tanner. A tanner, he deals with the hides, the skins of animals. In order to do that, you had to have flowing fresh water where you were tending to the the skins, where you were doing your work. In the city of Joppa, which is located directly on the coast, there is only one spot in all that city where there is a running fresh water spring. It is in the home of a family that we met when we went to Israel last year and they invited us in. And there is the freshwater spring, the only place in Joppa where it was possible for a tanner to live. And there we saw the stairwell guarded, locked off, that led to the roof where Peter was sitting in Acts chapter 10. And as he's sitting there, he has a vision from the Lord. And there's a sheet lowered down and there's unclean animals on it. Now, Peter was a good Jewish boy. And when the sheet was lowered down and he saw the unclean animals, he heard a voice from heaven say, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way, man, I'm totally kosher. I won't even touch it. And again, he heard the voice, kill and eat. And Peter says, may it never be, Lord. And again, kill and eat. And what God has made clean, no longer consider unclean. And at that moment, there came a knock at the door, according to Acts chapter 10. And there had been a delegation of people sent from a town up north on the coast where we will go to, Caesarea. And these people came and said, Peter, we're supposed to come and get you. There's a man who's seeking the Lord up in Caesarea. And Peter instantly knew that it was related to the vision that he had had, that what was unclean has now been declared clean. And so he said, I'll go with you. And he travels north to Caesarea and there he meets uh, Cornelius, who was a commander in the Roman army. And Cornelius was seeking the one true God. And Peter begins to speak to him and his family about the Lord. And lo and behold, Cornelius and his family are saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Gentiles, non-Jews. And Peter goes, "Uh uh-oh, there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. 
And so Peter, in awe of the fact that some Jews were saved, some non-Jews, excuse me, were saved by the Messiah and received the promise of the Holy Spirit, goes back to Jerusalem and he's called into the principal's office, so to speak. He's called before the bigwigs and they say, what's the deal, Pete? You're hanging out with Gentiles over there in Joppa and Caesarea? What's going on? And Peter says, I, I got to tell you guys. I saw this vision, and this voice said, kill and eat. And I said, no, I'm a good Jew. Kill and eat. No, I can't kill and eat. And no longer consider unclean what the Lord has made clean. And then there came a knock at the door, and I went with these people. And then there were more Gentiles, and I began to share with them. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were baptized and empowered, and they were saved. And everyone in Jerusalem went, (gasps) and they said, oh. So the promise is for the Gentiles as well. And the mystery was made known. The mystery of Christ Jesus in the Gentiles. They were now brought into the church, grafted into the promises of God. And though it was through Peter that the first Gentiles were brought into the church, it is Paul who was appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now it's very interesting um, after the Gentiles were saved, uh, the Jewish church didn't really do anything about it. They still just kind of kept chilling with the Jews and evangelizing the Jews. And just a little bit earlier, the Lord had knocked someone off his horse on the way to Damascus. His name was Saul. And he said, I will make this guy my apostle to the Gentiles. And so it says in Acts 9.15, the Lord speaking of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. And so Paul in this passage of Colossians is referencing his ministry to the Gentiles, preaching salvation, bringing them into the church, ministering to them. Now, it's amazing that the Lord chose Paul to go to the Gentiles. Because if you read your Bible, you know that Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Jew of Jews. He was the ultimate pedigree of Jews, so to speak, with the best education. And in our minds, you know, if we were sending out a missionary and we had Paul here, we would send Paul to the Jews. We'd say, Paul, you are most qualified to speak to the Jews about salvation. And we'd send an untrained man like Peter to the Gentiles. He's already hanging out with them in Joppa. But the Lord says, no, 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 that's too simple. Then they might get some of the glory. I like to choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Here's the deal. Paul, you go to the Gentiles. Peter, you go to the Jews. It doesn't make any sense. I know. It's wonderful, says the Lord. Paul, you go to the Gentiles. Peter, you go to the Jews. I want you to be aware this morning that what you're expecting God to do in your life may not always look how you would expect it to look. God is sort of outside the box. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't always do things the way that we would plan or the way that would make sense to us with our temporal mindset. He does things that are different and other, and so he sent Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, to the Gentiles, and that's what he's referring to when he speaks of his ministry in verse 25. Let's read verse 25 again. He says, Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I want you to notice that Paul says, I was made a minister. He was made a minister. He was made a minister by the Lord. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 
I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He says in 2 Timothy 1.11, speaking of the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He says in Ephesians 3.7, speaking of the gospel again, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And he says in Acts 20, verse 24, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knew, and you need to know today, that ministers are made by God. They are are ordained by God. They are chosen by God. No minister is self-made. Nor is a minister made by men or made by a school or made by an organization. The ministers of God or are, are ordained by God. It's hard to say. I say it a few times fast. Are ordained by God for the purposes of God. It's not like the ministry is just one of many career choices. Oh, I might be a fireman or a pastor. I might be an astronaut or an evangelist. I don't know. We'll see which one I like in the end. It doesn't really work that way. Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has ordained what your role is to be in the body. And it's not really a choice. The wonderful thing in life is to discover what it is. The purpose that God has for you. My son Isaiah, who is now five years old, um, he hates when I leave the house, like any other five-year-old. You know what I mean? He's my best little friend, and uh, I'm his best buddy. And he hates it when I leave the house. Uh, But when I'm going to share the Lord with people, I'm going to minister, I let him know, and he's cool with that. We'll say, hey, daddy's going to talk about Jesus to people. And he'll go, oh, okay, go tell him about Jesus, daddy. And when I walk out the door, daddy, are you going to go tell people about Jesus? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do, son. And uh, one day I was explaining to him, listen, tonight daddy's not going to be home. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be telling people about Jesus. And he said, hey, daddy, maybe, um, maybe, um, maybe um, when I'm older, I can tell people about Jesus with you. My heart just went... (laughs) It was was the most wonderful thing in the world to hear my son say, maybe when I'm older, I can tell people about Jesus with you. And I pray that the Lord would do that. That would be the most wonderful thing, that the Lord would ordain that. But you see, it's got to be the Lord. It can't be his choice. It's got to be the Lord in all of our lives. In fact, a week later, I was still excited about it, and I was engaging in a conversation. And I was like, hey, son, um, when, I, when you get older, we'll tell people about Jesus together, right? And he goes, well, maybe I'll be the guy that plays the guitar, and then you tell him about Jesus. <laughs> I think he had seen Dominic in his dreadlocks, thought that's way cooler than what dad does, and now he wants to be the worship leader. He doesn't know. You and I don't necessarily know, but the Lord knows. But listen, it is for you to discover. Do you know what God wants you to be? Do you know what God's purpose and plan for you is in this life? He has a calling upon your life. 
the same as he did upon the Apostle Paul. He's got a calling upon your life. And it may not always look how you would expect. And it ought not to look like other people's callings, you understand. All of them are different. It doesn't have to be that you're the guy standing up here. It's that you're the guy at work that takes ownership over the spiritual reality there. You're the guy at work that wants to shepherd the people that are there. You're the guy in school that takes evangelism seriously. You're the guy in your family that wants to see your family redeemed and prays for them. Whatever your sphere of influence is, wherever you are now, Christian, God wants to use you there. He is the great economist. He is not into wasting your time nor you wasting his. Wherever you are now, God has a plan and a purpose for you there. And the wonderful adventure of life is to discover what that is. Listen, there's got to be more than getting up, making money, coming home, eating food, going to bed. Getting up, making money, coming home, eating food, going to bed. There's got to be more to that than there is. It's the purposes and plan of God for your life, in your life. And you've got to discover it for you. What it is. Not for you, like relatively speaking. But what God's plan is for you where you are now. And one of the pitfalls that you need to avoid is getting to others focused in the sense of envy. Well, I wish I had their role. I wish I could do what they did. I wish I had that authority or that position. We are susceptible to that as people, aren't we? It happens to all of us. Listen, James and John, the disciples of the Lord, the sons of Zebedee, uh, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. Uh, They came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 with their mommy, little Jewish boys with their mommy. And their mommy said, Lord, uh, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. And the Lord said, wow, okay, what do you want, lady? I want that when you come into your glory, you shall grant to my sons, James and John, to sit on your right and on your left. In other words, I want my sons to be leaders in the kingdom of God. What a good Jewish mother. That's not a problem. That's great. She wanted her sons to be leaders. But the Lord said, listen, lady, you don't understand what you're asking. Mark chapter 10, verse 40. He says, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, in the plan and the purposes of God, God has already ordained what your role is. Again, Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Not in somebody else's, but in them. And you see, James and John were desiring position that was not theirs to have. And the Lord said, I'm sorry. Even though you came with your mother, I can't give you that. It has already been ordained for others. But James and John, you do have a role. You do have a role. But please be very careful of not becoming desirous of other people's position, their God-given position. That was the sin of Lucifer. Lucifer desired the position of God. He wanted to ascend to that height, and because of that, he was cast out of heaven. And because that is the temptation to which Lucifer fell, it is the one that he will most often confront us with. He wants to get our eyes on everything that we don't have and off of what we do have. I call it the Eve complex. God said to Eve, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but there's just one Eve, leave it alone. 
What does Satan do? Satan comes along in Genesis 3 and says, Eve, what's the deal here? What a ripoff. What a jip. What a bummer. You can't eat from that tree? Well, we can eat from all the other ones, but the Lord said, don't eat from that one because in the day we eat of it, we shall surely die. (laughs) I'm so sure. You're not going to die. The Lord doesn't want you to have good things. He knows that when you eat of it, you shall be made like him. And so Eve, come on, the one thing that the Lord withheld from you is really the only thing that will make you happy. Sound familiar? And getting her desirous of a position and a possession that was not hers, she fell to passion and she sinned that day and the effects are obvious. It's the same thing Satan tempted the Lord with in Matthew 4 and in Luke chapter 4. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes along and says, you must be hungry. Turn these stones to bread. In other words, fulfill your passion, your fleshly desire. What you feel you have need of, go ahead and get it. And the Lord said, man does not live by bread alone, but by the every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he showed him, he took him up to the high part of the temple on the pinnacle. And he said, throw yourself down from here. And when the angels rescue you, everybody will see how wonderful you are, Jesus. He tempted him with position. And then he took him and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, they're all mine. Lucifer declared that. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the New Testament says. He said, they're all mine. Bow to me and I'll give them to you. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But he tempted him with his physical passions. He tempted him with possession. And he tempted him with position. Make yourself some food. The kingdoms of the world could be yours. Show yourself to be great. Same thing the enemy will tempt us with today. In fact, it speaks of these in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Love meaning don't put your hope in those things. Agape is the word used there. If anyone loves the world this way, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, passion, the lust of the eyes, possession, and the boastful pride of life, position, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so be aware of these three Ps. Remember them. Be wise concerning them. Because any temptation that comes your way from the enemy will fall into one of these three categories. He'll be tempting you with regard to your passions, or the possessions that you think you need, or the position that you think ought to be yours. And he will be quick to sow in your heart a discontent that begins to say, if I only had this, then I would have everything. If I only had that, then I would be happy. If I was only recognized in this way, then everything would be good. Why isn't it mine? Why can't I have it? Why don't people recognize me? It's from the pit of hell. It's the temptations of the enemy. Be very aware of them. And be cognizant, mindful, and purposeful in saying to the Lord, Lord, what is my role? In your kingdom, in my sphere of influence, Lord, what is my role? Maybe it's your role right now. You're a housewife. You're a house mother. And your role is to raise those children in the Lord. There's no more worthy thing in the kingdom of God. Maybe you're a manager at work. And your role there is to shepherd those people who are underneath you in righteousness. Maybe your role is you're a student and you can take evangelism seriously and win people to the Lord who are for the first time in their life considering eternity and things of weight and things of value. 
What is God's calling upon your life? He has a stewardship for you. And that's what Paul says next. He says that it is a stewardship from God here in our passage for your benefit, for the benefit of the church. Very important that as you begin to seek what your role in this life is, you need to know that it's not for your benefit. It's not for yours. It is for the benefit of others. It is a stewardship and entrusting. It's from God, not from yourself. So you ought to be grateful and you ought to be humble. And it is for others. So you ought to be a servant. It is for the benefit of the church for other people. In fact, the word minister that Paul uses here means servant. It means servant. Now, obviously, Paul is a leader in the church, and there's a leadership role implied here. But what the New Testament calls for and defines and instructs us in is servant leadership. Very contrary to the world. Servant leadership. In the world, in corporate hierarchy, so on and so forth, you have the pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, you have all the regular folk. As you go up, you have levels of management until you get to the CEO, the big wig, and everybody serves him. In the church, we turn that pyramid upside down, and you have everybody here. And then as you go down, you move in leadership until you come to the lead or the senior or the head pastor. And it is his role in the church to serve all the people. The more of a leadership role God gives you in the church, the more that you are called to serve the people. That is what the term minister means. In fact, it expresses this very clearly in Mark chapter 10, just after Jesus told them that he could not give them the position they were desiring. He explained to them what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God, starting in verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not to be this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the attitude of a minister of church leadership ought to be, I am a servant of the people. And that ought to be the attitude of every Christian. But understand, the church leader, especially as Paul realizes here, he says, I suffered on behalf of the church. I endured much for the church. I'm a minister of the church. What I do, I do on their behalf. Now, when the church leader is the servant of the church, it does not mean that he is to do everything in the church. That would be unbiblical for two reasons. Number one, he does not have every gift that is necessary for the ministry. If you see a pastor or leader who thinks that he has every gift, slap him and tell him to call me. I'll explain why you slapped him. There is nobody that has every gift. God sees to it that he distributes to us according to his will different gifts that we might work together that we might work together. And so it would be unbiblical for one man to do everything in the church. Number one, he would do a poor job because he's not gifted to do it. And then he'd be ripping people off of their gifts, their calling, their role within the church. The second reason is because it explicitly says so in Ephesians 4.12. 
It says that the job of the leaders in the church, it says for the apostle, the prophet, and the pastor teacher, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. My job as a senior pastor of this church is to, through the teaching of the word and discipleship, equip you guys to do the work of the kingdom of God. To equip you guys to do the work of the ministry both inside the four walls of the church and praise Jesus outside the four walls of the church. It is my job to serve you in that way. And in my doing that, there ought not to be any glory. Understand that. I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, very important passage for my life. I hope it becomes for yours. Luke chapter 17, Jesus here is speaking to his leaders. He's speaking to the disciples. And he says, starting in verse 7, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come and immediately sit down and eat? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, look, nobody who's a master of the house says to a slave when he comes in, Oh, slave, come and sit down and eat and let me serve you. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 8, But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. He does not even thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, leaders in the church, when you do all the things which are commanded you, should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And so in my role and in your role, when we have been 100% obedient to the Lord, when we have done all the things which are commanded us, there is no reason to boast. There is no reason to be proud. There is no reason to glory or to give glory. We simply ought to say, I am an unworthy, unprofitable slave. I have only done what I was supposed to do. That is biblical and right. And let me tell you what that ought to do for you. It ought to help you keep from putting people on pedestals. It ought to help you keep from putting people on pedestals. Too often, pastors are put up on a pedestal. Listen, this is wrong. Let me tell you something about pastors. They should not be put on pedestals for a few reasons. Number one, they're but men. They're flesh and blood like you. They will sin. They will fail you. They will disappoint you. They will make mistakes. Put them on a pedestal, you will be sorely disappointed. Number two, pastors, I believe, are those that are so messed up, God had to keep them close to him. For example, James and John and Peter. James and John and Peter, if you study the Gospels, they were the problem people. They were the problem people. James and John and Peter, Peter was a big mouth. James and John were like, oh, we want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Brought their mama to tell Jesus what to do. These were the troublemakers out of all the disciples. And so the Lord made them the inner circle. He said, the rest of the disciples, except for Judas, they'll be okay. These clowns, I've got to keep close to myself. 
And there are people that can go through life and be Christians. There are others that the Lord knows this dude will never pull it off. I've got to make him a pastor and keep him on a short chain. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so you are making a grave mistake when you put a pastor on the pedestal because God has already said, He's the fool that I chose to confound the wise. He's the one that was such a mess, I had to keep him on a short chain, so I made him a pastor that he might always be about my things. Otherwise, I'll make a mess of everything. Listen to me. Do not put a pastor on a pedestal. If you've put me on one, please today repent. Jesus Christ is the only one who should be enthroned in any way in your life. If you have done that with any person, please repent before you are heartbroken. We will disappoint you. We are people. It is inevitable. If you haven't put us on a pedestal, and you've recognized us as unworthy servants such as yourself, trying to fulfill our roles by the grace and the power and the calling of God, then you will have grace with us. If not, you will be sad. Now, having said that, it's important since we're looking at ministers that we balance this and realize that faithful leaders are a gift from God to the church. Faithful leaders are a gift of God to the church. We see it throughout the uh, Old and New Testament, but I love Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord speaking to Israel says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. God promises to his people that he'll raise up shepherds who are after his own heart, that are concerned with the things that concern God, passionate about what God is passionate about, burdened with what God is burdened with. And that that good shepherd, that faithful minister, will feed the flock on knowledge and understanding. And that that is a gift from God to the body of Christ, to the people of God. And in that role, the minister must be motivated solely by his love for the Lord. And in your role, you must be motivated in your ministry, in your work for the kingdom, solely by your love for the Lord. Anything else will fail you. What do I mean? In John chapter 21, the Lord restored Peter, you'll remember. And he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. I love you. Then feed my sheep. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know, I, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And a third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. I love you. Then tend my lambs. In other words, Peter, your love for me ought to have the outflow of ministry. Your love for me means that you need to shepherd, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And that's got to be your motivation in serving the Lord is your love for the Lord. Paul said the love of God compels me that he preached the gospel out of obligation because of his love to the Lord. And in your ministry, that has got to be what motivates you because guess what? People will let you down. And if you're motivated simply out of a love for people, your motivation will run dry because as people, our love runs dry sometimes. 
You understand, we must love people, we do love people, but the way that you serve them has got to be out of a love for God. If it's from a love for God, then you could serve them to the nth degree. Because it's not about them, it's about the Lord. And you're doing it as unto the Lord and for the Lord and in an act of worship to the Lord. And so you can serve somebody whether they like you or not, whether they stick with you or not, whether they turn their back on you or not. You can still serve them because it's not just about them, it's about Jesus Christ. And you say, I know this person is messed up, but so am I. But I love the Lord, and so I'm going to serve them. And if your love for the Lord is your motivation for ministry, then you will never lack wind in your sail. And you will never lack direction and unction and power to do what the Lord is calling you to do by His Spirit. The Lord said to Peter, if you love me, then you feed my sheep. And that's what a faithful shepherd is to do, is to feed the sheep. We see Peter talk about it in his first epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about this. Then it reads in 1 Peter 5, 1, Peter says, Therefore, I, exalt, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and in partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter writes to the elders, And he says to them, shepherd the flock of God among you. Do it voluntarily. Do it according to the will of God and not for your own gain, but with eagerness. And don't lord it over them, but be an example. And your reward is from the Lord. Your reward is from the Lord. And he speaks that to the elders. Now in the New Testament, the term pastor and elder is used interchangeably. And according to the definition here, an elder in the church is one who is shepherding the flock. And so who are the elders in our church? The elders in our church are the pastoral staff, those who are shepherding the flock. Myself, Pastor G, Pastor Dominic, Pastor Tim, Pastor Sean, the pastoral staff are the elders of the church. Those who are exercising oversight, feeding the flock, loving the flock. And we're to do so out of our love for the Lord. Paul said back in our text, Colossians 1 verse 25, that he was preaching the fullness of the word of God. He knew that his calling, his ministry meant that he was to preach the word of God in its fullness and in doing so, he would be a faithful shepherd. The faithful shepherd feeds the flock. The unfaithful shepherd feeds himself. He's in it for sordid gain. He has ill motives. And just as the Bible speaks about the faithful shepherd, it speaks of the unfaithful shepherd. And one passage that I visit frequently is Ezekiel 34, the first 10 verses. We don't have time to look at it right now. Look at it for homework. And it talks about the unfaithful shepherd who isn't feeding the flock, but he's feeding himself. He has ill motives. He's he's concerned for himself. And the Bible says that God will deal with those men. God will deal with those men. But if you listen to me, church, 
if you have a faithful shepherd, if you have a good shepherd who is feeding you, then you need to realize that they are gifts from God. And they ought to be viewed by the church as such. It's necessary as we continue our study of a minister here that we look at how the church ought to view the leaders in the church. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How the church ought to view the leaders in the church appointed by God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another says here that the churches do appreciate those who diligently labor among them and have charge over them and who give them instruction that they are to esteem them highly in love, not on a pedestal. Don't esteem them highly on a pedestal. Esteem them highly in love, it says here. And now in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a couple books toward the back. 1 Timothy chapter 5. says in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well, 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In the context here, it has to do with financial compensation. And those elders, those shepherds appointed by the church, appointed by the Lord in the church, should be, as it says here, considered worthy of double honor. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I realize that as I... um, as I read these passages to you, that put, it puts me in a precarious situation as your pastor reading these to you. Uh, but listen, Paul had the same situation going on. Paul was a leader in the church and he wrote these epistles. And so I read these to you in all humility because it's my job to instruct you in the word, okay? It's hard for me to do so. But this next one I rather enjoy. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That part I don't so much enjoy. Uh, That part's scary to me. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will give an account for your souls. Myself and the other pastors in the church will stand before the Lord, and the Lord will say, Okay, so how is Susie doing? How's Jen doing? How's Jesse? How was Mark? How'd it go? Because we've been allotted oversight and we will be held accountable. It says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers because as such you will incur stricter judgment. That terrifies me, humbles me. It's not my favorite part of the passage, but the next part I really enjoy. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. 
for this would be unprofitable for you. Don't give your pastors too much grief. Let them rule with joy. Don't give them too much heart, too much of a hard time because this would be unprofitable for you. You see, I'm in trouble and you're in trouble. I'll give an account for your souls, but if you mess too much with the leadership of the church, then you're going to be, it's going to be unprofitable for you. That's what the Bible says here. I don't say that to scare you. I say that that you might have mercy on me. I want to read it one more time. <laughs> Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so ministers in the church, they are to be the servants of the people. Faithful ones are gifts from God. Unfaithful ones, God will deal with. But if you have a faithful minister, you ought to treat him biblically according to the text that we've seen today. We also understand that God has a calling upon your life. And it looks different from everybody else's. And so I encourage you today to seek the Lord, to begin to serve people. You will never know your calling until you get very selfless. If you're selfish, then there's no need in your life for supernatural empowering. But when you become selfless and you start to serve others and you try to meet needs that are beyond you, then you need the supernatural empowering of God. And that's when the gifts are imparted and the gifts begin to function. If you just walk sort of ho-hum and normal, there's no reason for power, no reason for gifts. You're bound up in your own gig. The moment you get selfless and seek to serve others as a minister... Then you experience radical Christianity, supernatural empowering, and a working of the gifts in the body. What is your calling? Are you pursuing it? Are you seeking after it? Are you serving people? That's when Christianity gets exciting. And lastly, are you rejoicing today in the ancient mystery that has been revealed to you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you full of joy today that Christ has been revealed to us, that we have been brought into the promises of God, that every promise in God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus, that we have abundant life and eternal life, that we have been washed white as snow? Are you rejoicing in that today? If not, you ought to. Amen? Lord, thank you for these wonderful things that you've taught us about. Lord, you're so good. You're so merciful. And Lord, I just pray now that you would stir up joy in our hearts. Thank you for the promises that you made to Israel that you brought us into. Lord, would you by your spirit remind us of those promises as we worship you? And would you well up in our hearts adoration and praise and thanksgiving? And then Lord, as we go forth from this place, teach us to be selfless. Teach us to serve others that we might discover your supernatural empowering and anointing and giftings. That we might be ministers that we might be useful in the kingdom. We might live out our kingdom roles as you have ordained, Lord. Work these things in our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.